Hello, and welcome to the Architectette podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Brady. Architectette is a podcast that illuminates the lesser heard stories of women plus in architecture and related fields. On today's episode of Architectette, we welcome Twi Fontalera. Twi is the founding principal of women and minority owned element structural engineers. Their impressive work spans commercial and residential sectors, but what makes this company unlike any of their competitors is Twee's commitment to transforming what leadership and workplace culture looks like in the AEC industry. On today's episode, we talk about what it feels like not to match the stereotype of a structural engineer and how Twee has faced and overcome discouragement. We next chat about wellness and workplace culture. Twee encourages her employees to be open and honest with the team, take mental health days, and utilize wellness perks in the office. We joke that Twee leads by example when she takes an occasional midday nap in Element's wellness room. Empathy is another important topic we cover. Twee shares what tools and methods she uses to create workplace environments where people feel supported and encouraged. Next, we cover the realities of running a business like dealing with layoffs, nervousness during performance reviews, and having tough conversations. We talk about the hiring process and how adaptability and humility are the most important qualities Twee looks for in her candidates. We end the episode with a few book suggestions from Twee's library. Make sure to leave us a review, rating, or comment. Follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can join our mailing list at architectet.com. And a new feature, you can also support the show with a donation on Spotify. All links to connect and support and follow will be in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Twee, I'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Architect Debt, and I'm so excited to talk to you a little bit more today about your journey and and how you got to this point. So welcome. Thank you, Caitlin, and I'm also excited and looking forward to just having this conversation with you, and thank you for the opportunity to share my story. So we will start with your career journey. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and what inspired you to pursue your eventual career in structural engineering? Yes, yes. So I've always loved art. And in high school, I've taken drafting class during junior year. I took all the art elective that you can possibly take. And I fell in love with mechanical drafting. Like I didn't even know that that was actually some type of art. And that led to my second year taking architectural drafting. Loved it. The teacher's like, you should study architecture. And so that was my first time being exposed to what architecture was. So from that day forward, it was all about being an architect. So I originally wanted to be an architect. I studied three years at a community college, got myself into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And my first quarter there, I got really intimidated by the teacher, you know, and it was if you don't think you have talent, then you better go find something else to do. Oh my gosh. Right? And being young and just coming from a background that I am a first generation immigrant, being first generation college, it was very intimidating. And my self-esteem was not quite all there. So it's like, there's, I don't think I'm spatially talented like this teacher wanted me to be. So I actually decided to venture off and find something else because it's like I'm never going to succeed as an architect based on what he's telling me and but I eventually found but I knew I still wanted to do something in the built environment something with building and I discovered structural fell in love with it that journey itself is another story but um I will say that the dean of the archie or architectural structural 
program basically told me because I was female, I wasn't going to succeed as a structural engineer and I should go look to do something else as well. But I yeah. persisted. <laughs> What's with all of these male professors, like, right? discouraging their students? Yeah. Oh my goodness. My goodness, right? And, you know, but I, I, I persisted and I went through the civil engineering program that have a structural emphasis and continue my journey to do structural engineering. And I loved it. I... Uh, once I graduated, I worked for a firm for 12 years doing a variety of different project type from custom homes, which are, in my opinion, one of the funner type of building to do because of all the intricate detailing and whatnot, all the way to multifamily, commercial. So got a sprinkle of various project type. And then I, I had my first child. And that's when I started feeling kind of like, perspective of what I'm perceived as in terms of whether I was committed to my career or being productive, you know, uh, even though as far as productivity, it was pretty clear that that performance did not go down. But unfortunately, I think that there's still this set of expectation for working mother that is not quite adjusted, you know, and when you're a working mother, especially being a new mom, you, you have this identity crisis because first you love your career. I mean, you studied so hard to be where you are. You love your child. You don't want to give any of them up. So it's a balancing act. But I, I think where firm kind of missed the mark is being able to evaluate working mothers a bit differently right? Then, then just saying, okay, well, here's the basic performance review thing. And here's all the job expectation. You know, I, I think there should be some flexibility. And that's one of the things that I hope to change. But because of that, I, I felt like the flexibility to do both was a little limited for me. And so after 12 years of being at the same firm, and I, you know, I had a really good mentor, I needed to leave to have more flexibility because my kids needed me more. So I had two kids while at the firm, got married, have two kids. And yeah, so I, I needed more flexibility to care for my kids because of their learning differences too. So they needed more attention. Coming from a different perspective of now you have more responsibilities outside of work than you previously had. And that's probably perceptive to your employer. And it's certainly very present in your life. Is that something do you think that derailed some of your career progression or slowed some of that progression? I think that it slowed it. I wouldn't say derailed it, but it definitely slowed it. And talking to other engineers, women engineers, in you know, and engineers with children, yeah, there's there's a little bit of that kind of pause in their career. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, uh, understood, right? That there's a priority that has to be taken. At the same token, I think that employer can do a better job to help navigate that challenging time. Mm -hmm. and still have retained great engineers, you know, talented engineers. I know some firms do a better job at others in terms of accommodating, but I think that there's a lot still that we can do. Did you see a lot of women drop out of the profession at a certain age? Because I know with architecture, it's 
I, I was speaking to another guest and she was saying, you know, we had equal representation in school and I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was something of the past. And she goes, then we all got into firms. We we're all working, equal representation, maybe even more women than men in her instance. And then she said, when everyone started having kids, that's where I was like, oh my gosh, now I see it because this person left, this person left. And then women aren't considered at equal rates to pay increases or leadership increases. And she's like, oh my gosh, now I see it where it's it, the herd really thinned out as she got later and later in, into her career. Yeah, I would say that that's very, a, a very similar trend in structural engineering as well. And that's the reason why we don't see a lot of female leadership, right? And yes, the percentage of female and male ratio in school now is a lot better than it used to be. But as you start seeing the career ladder and then the, and then when you start having kids, you do see that difference. And then when you get to the leadership level, that percentage really drop off and tapers off. So, so there's a lot more for us to do, but that's kind of how I started my journey. I started Element out of flexibility. And I really thought that I was just gonna be able to do it kind of like project by project basis, but it grew organically <laughs> faster than I anticipated. So there was a lot of learning curve in terms of being a business owner. So that's kind of where the journey went from this kid that loved art to starting Element Structural Engineer. Mm -hmm. What were some of the first projects you had? And then what was that tipping point where it took off, like you just mentioned? Yeah, so I, you know, I got pretty fortunate. I got into the green built license where at that time it was all about green professionals. So it's like, okay, well, how am I going to distinguish myself here besides the fact that I'm a female business owner, you know? <laughs> Which is like, enough, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, but at that time, I cannot say that that was a, a something I can leverage, mm -hmm. right? I saw that as more of something that was more negative for me because that's not your traditional engineering firm. Mm. When you think of who is the founder of a structural engineering firm, you're not going to imagine me, <laughs> you know, you're going to imagine at the time. And I've been told this by a client that, well, you know, in the traditional, they want traditional engineers, Twee. That's like, oh, well, what does that mean? And instead of giving it to me straight, he named off, you know, prominent firms in the Bay Area that are well-known structural engineering firm. And guess what? If you look at their leadership, it's mostly gray hair, white men. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, so that's what you mean that I don't fit in. And so hence, the client is going to be a little bit more hesitant because of how I look mm -hmm. while I'm giving them expertise, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was unfortunate. But we, I started off uh, with single family residential. Mm -hmm. And from there, I got opportunity to do multifamily. And the one thing that I'm really proud of is that, you know, the client that I built, is my contact that is not associated with uh, my prior firm. You know, that is one thing that people leverage, right? Quite a bit. And it's all about who you know. But at the time, you know, I really enjoy working for my mentor. And plus, 
I thought this thing was going to be a part-time gig. So it's like, okay, if I get lucky, I'll find my own. And I was very fortunate. I went, uh, my daughter was enrolled in a school that turned out one of the mom was an interior designer. The other mom was had her own uh, architecture business. And so they started giving me work. And then from there, it just kind of built. Yeah, so I've been very fortunate in the opportunity and being set up with opportunity to grow. So I would say within three years, we were able to do our first multifamily project. That's incredible. You know, and that, yeah, yeah. And that came from trusted client that's like sought me out. It's like, okay, we want to work with you. Can you handle it kind of thing? And so I was very fortunate to do that. And my dear, one of my dear friends who works in the affordable housing Uh, sector was able to bring me on for my first affordable housing project with the client. And from there, it just kind of took off building that relationship. And affordable housing is something that's very passionate to me because of my teenage experience of almost being homeless. So it was like kind of near and dear to my heart. And that client saw that, you know, they saw that, okay, not only that I have the qualification and the team's capability to do affordable housing project, but that it meant something more to us than just another project. You know, and they saw that and because of that, they they really kind of lean into, well, most of the community that we serve in the affordable housing industry is the low income marginalized population. So but what better way than to support the actual business that are designing. And so some of them had start changing or implementing what they call, you know, diversity equity contracting and make an effort to utilize more SBE, WB and MBE firms like ours. Do you mind just if our listeners don't know what those acronyms stand for? Can you just say what those three mean? Sure. Yeah, so SB is the small business enterprise, which is the state or federal level. You can get that certification as well as the women's business enterprise and minority business enterprise. So at Element, we're certified and we have all the BEs that you want. (laughs) So that has helped in terms of recently leveraging that more in in being part of the diversity supplier initiative that we're noticing that client are making an effort and intent to uh, do more of, whether it's in government or private, we're seeing more of that. So it's been a great opportunity for us to grow in various segments. And it seems too that a lot of your work you mentioned is in affordable housing. How is your firm address staying profitable while also being competitive when pursuing work that might, you know, you're not, it's not building luxury condos. Affordable housing has a lot, probably smaller budget than some of those higher paying jobs. You know, yes. And there's a little bit of a myth to that as well. Okay. And what I mean by that is the the cost to build these affordable housing projects mm-hmm. are not that different than let's say a market rate housing. Okay. It's just the funding. The funding comes from different sources. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of course it's a little bit more competitive, but for us, you know, how we do that is really leveraging our process. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so one thing that we we work hard, uh, the first decade of element, if you will, is really getting a process down in terms of, you know, your standard details. Mm-hmm. Right, your standard drawing. So the way that our team is set up, we have our team of engineers and our team of BIM modeler. So the BIM team are responsible for the drawing standards, mm-hmm. you know. And so because we have the two teams, it really helps leverage each of their strength to do what they need to do. So we work hard on basically building processes so mm-hmm. that one, we can help standardize some of those processes to then be able to work with the client more efficiently. So what that means is understanding that, okay, here are the common pain point that client have. So make sure that we coordinate those common pain point with each of our project instead of taking it for granted and assuming that, okay, because you work on project A with the client, project B is going to be the same. It's easy to, right? It's easy to stay complacent, which I'm not good at staying complacent. <laughs> uh, but that's what that's what have been leveraging us is being able to have processes in place so that our engineer can spend more time being creative and creating kind of that environment to be able to go back and coordinate. And I think that's how we stay competitive and really looking at our overhead. We've been scaling responsibly. So where in our overhead can we do enough to stay nimble, right? And not have to spend a lot of like resources on software. Software can totally blow your budget away. (laughs) You know, you have Revit, then they want BIM 360, which is another cost. And then there's always add-ons. So it's like, how you know, how do we manage the resources? We're very fortunate that we have a great operations manager, as well as the three team working together to standardize processes where we can to stay efficient. And then really just looking at our resources so that we can bundle things up where it can help with that cost and then stay competitive. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned a couple of the people you have working on your team. How big is your team right now? We have 15. Okay. And how long ago did you start the firm? So we started in 2011 and we're going to be 12 years old. So we made it past the 10 year mark. So, (laughs) and you know, my vision now is that we want to build Element to be a legacy firm, right? For it to be around much longer after I retire. And the goal is to make an impact in our industry in terms of really how we take care of our people. That's one of my biggest passion is how can we do a better job at taking care of our people? I'm pretty sure in architecture is the same thing where people kind of boast about working 50 hours, 60 hours a week we all know that it's not healthy. That is, that is not healthy, right? And so we, we want to do our job well. We don't want to be having burnt out where we can help it. Yes, there's time where you're going to have to do more than 40, but let's not make that normal. Let's not make, you know, working 50 hours a week and sacrificing family time normal. You know, so my hope is that we can build element to be able to influence that. To, to be able to change that, what is seen as normal in the industry. And so one thing that we are very focused on is a people first organization. 
And if you've seen some of our social media, we're big on empathy. The goal for me, my vision as a leader of Element is to be able to create leaders that lead with empathy and execute with compassion. You know, that is our biggest goal. And if we can do that, and that would be a ripple effect throughout the industry, then that is a positive impact that I would be happy to be a part of. And so when you say leading with empathy, do you have any concrete examples of what that looks like on a, on a day-to-day basis? Yes. I would say one of the practical way is to listen to understand, right? Building trust. So we went on an empathy journey last year at Element, and it was a wonderful journey. And at the end of the year, we did a, an Element story and staff had an opportunity to share how this empathy journey had impacted them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when people think of empathy, it's hard to put it in practical fashion. Like, what does that actually mean? And our empathy journey consists of self-care because it's easy to tell people to have self-care. But what does that actually mean, right? So for us, one of the biggest thing was self-care in terms of breath work and paying attention to your mental health and hopefully be able to find expert companion that you need to. So encouraging that kind of mental health, right? So we implemented a mental health day. So we have three mental health day that is separate from your personal PTO or holiday. And so it's about taking how you take care of yourself because if you can take care of yourself and you're in a, uh, you can be present and in a better state of mind, then now you can be present at work. So then when we take it into the workplace, we look about, okay, how do you show up? You show up by listening to understand. Most of us listen to respond, right? I myself took about two to three years to get to a better point of listening to understand. You know, that was one of the skill set as a leader that I actually have to work hard on. Not only that, but building trust. Building trust was like kind of the theme that most of the staff had said was a big improvement. And part of that was when we went on remote, we carved out kind of like virtual water cooler moment, if you will, where we have twice a week, we check in. And we just really just randomly talk about whatever's on people's minds. So it's really just a time where the team get together and spend time together. Uh, But through the empathy journey, we've also kind of got in that deeper layer of being vulnerable and sharing maybe at a deeper level things that we normally wouldn't share. And so for me, when we talk about building trust, it's not just about having happy hours and asking how you're doing, it could be very surface level, right? But to be able to create a a environment where people know that if they're vulnerable, that they can be vulnerable and it's not going to be against them. Like if you're having a bad mental health day, you're having a bad mental health day and it's okay. But it's building that kind of workplace psychological safety that it's okay for people to be able to say, you know what? I just need a moment and I'm going to take two hours off for my mental health today and know that it doesn't reflect negatively towards their performance, you know, but that's start from the top, right? That's start from the leadership. That's so important to have that conversation during the pandemic. A lot of people were going through a lot of things at home alone. 
And I remember I definitely went through a lot. I had a, a few family deaths and I finally had a chance to catch up with my boss and she, you know, it had been some time and she's like, oh, how, how have things been? And it, it's hard to bring stuff up like that just at a surface level. And I remember, I think probably a few months had gone by and then I, I brought it up and she's like, oh my gosh, like I had no idea that you had like all these people pass away and this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah. well, I what do I do? Say it on a Zoom meeting, like, hi everyone, like we're about to start in a minute, but I just like to tell you that I'm feeling sad today. So I think creating space for that is so smart and just having a space where hopefully people aren't going through terrible things, but if they are, they have the opportunity to share outside of a billable client project meeting, which might be the only time that that people get to talk otherwise. Yes. And I would recommend Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, for any leadership. I actually completed that with another client that turns into a great kind of supporter and friends. And we actually did like a book club where her and I would meet and went through the whole dare to lead exercise together. I would recommend that. But one thing there that is a good suggestion is the two word check-in. One of our workshop, we did a two word, uh, two word check-in and one of our staff is like, I'm really sad today. And right there, they showed vulnerability, right? So I think that's where leaders can really help exercise that empathy by saying, okay, obviously you don't wanna ask because now we're in a group. But to be able to make that effort afterward and say, hey, you know, I noticed that you said you were sad today. That's part of your check-in. You know, what's going on? And I think that right there, when you reach out one-on-one, it means a lot to an employee, right? Instead of like, oh, what's going on in a group? Because you don't know how sensitive, like you said, you're not going to just like in a group announce that, hey, I have a death in the family. It's hard. Yeah. But you as the leader, if you can stay cognizant and catch that and be able to say, okay, at the end of this meeting, at the end of this workshop, I'm going to reach out. And that's what we did. And it turns out that his mom was in the hospital and, you know, months later she passed. For him, he felt like the team was there for him. Even though it was a hard time, he was able to express himself. And leadership came out and asked him, you know, what's going on? And so as a team, we got together and say, hey, we know that you're going to have hard days. Mm -hmm. So please let us know when you can't handle it. When people are grieving, they don't want to take time off because it's easier to distract. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I think where the team and especially leadership can do is just check in and remind them that, hey, it's okay that you feel this way and maybe somehow encourage them to take that time off Mm -hmm. when when they can or um, or be able to know, let them know that, hey, if you can't handle it that day, it's okay. We got a whole team behind you to help out. And our team had showed up for each other in that way. And that's why, you know, one of our staff is like, trust is built in small moments. And I'm like, oh my God, that, you know, like, I was like, you guys going to make me cry because I'm very sensitive. Right. But that's what I mean by how you can put empathy into action. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the, the, um, the other thing is part of empathy is giving yourself grace, being patient, right? Not just yourself, but everybody else. We know that our industry 
is a really tough industry to be in. And as structural engineer, what we do is life safety, right? So it's even more stressful. So it's easy to go into a meeting, especially we all have the perfect storm project where there's always that one project that if anything can go wrong, will go wrong. You know, we all have at least one of those. But it's so easy to go in and start pointing fingers it, 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 because everybody's frustrated. Mm -hmm. So where empathy going to practice is for that one person to be able to take a step back and say, hey, look, we want to be able to work together as a team. We understand this is a frustrating situation, mm -hmm. but be able to help them navigate that, right? Uh, and and actually, one of our staff, she um, she had a homeowner that was almost hyperventilating. And it was like, it's such a small remodel project, but anything can go wrong, went wrong on that remodel project. And she practiced empathy. She's like, you know what? You sound like you need to slow down. Would you like to do some breath work with me? So they did breath work together, but see, that's a trusting, right? She was able to build trust through that empathy, through being saying, I understand where you're coming from. Let me see what I can do to help. And that particular instant, the client was hyperventilating. She's like, you know what? Can we do some breath work together? <laughs> Sounds like you need it. And that really helped her out. You know, so that's how we tried to practice it at Element. Just last week, we all looked at each other on the screen and it's like, it's been a tough week. It's like, should we do some breath work before we get into this meeting? And it really helped you um, stay present for that meeting. So I encourage everybody to do breath work, anything to help you slow down. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's You get too riled up and you lose yourself in the chaos of work and deadlines and timelines. But it seems like you have a pretty great team of people that also agree with like an empathetic work approach. How do you find such good talent? Obviously, there's that stereotype we talked about earlier of what structural engineers are or have been in the past. Are you looking at a different pool of people or are you just hiring really anyone that you think is a good candidate that comes across? That's a great question. I would say that we are open and we're mindful of our own biases. Because as you know, when you're part of a group, it's easy to be blinded by certain, you know, have blind spots and certain things. Uh, we've been very fortunate that most of our talent, are, our team is quite diverse. We have a diverse pool of talent and it range, they all range from like their technical expertise to maybe they're just entry level. But all of them, what we really look for is how do they fit into our impact value and what our impact value is actually our core value of integrity make a difference passion adaptability continuous growth and teamwork so do we see that because we all know that technical skills are easy to learn i mean they're not easy but they're easier to learn than let's say the people skills or the empathy skills or the grit you know having that grit so when we when we talk to talent, we do have a cultural or a value fit session where it's mainly with me. And we'll just talk about anything else but engineering. And I really get want to get to know them as a person. 
right? Because to me, I think that any hobby or anything that you do outside of work is important because work is, should not be the only thing that defines you. And it just happened that we've always looked for people that are adaptable and are humble. You know, like naturally that progression of how we found talent, that's like we noticed a trend. I run the business with my husband uh, and we're very, two very different people. <laughs> we're like, how do you do that? But uh, because we're different, we're able to leverage each other's strength. And so when we look at a candidate, it's like I have my team to talk to them about all the technical stuff. And then I talk to them more. The the I want I don't want to use cultural fit because it's easy to then be biased. But really, do they have the same impact value? What is it that they are looking for in an employee? Right. Um, because we know we're not the big fancy firm. We do meaningful, purposeful work and we have fun, challenging engineering projects, too. So what is it that you're really looking for? You know, and are we the right fit? We have one engineer. She works for us part time, but she's also a piano teacher. You know, it's like, you know, just things like that. Yeah, we have an engineer. He's a dog trainer. So he trained guide dogs for the blinds. And he's like third generation. But it's it's things like that. It's like we find because those are attributes that really, when you look at that perspective of their of them as like people in their own personal life, you get that kind of whole picture of who they are, what what's their value and how it aligns with our value. Right, because not not everybody's going to be a, a a fit for element, and we're not going to be a fit for everybody. So I like to say we're kind of like quirky and fun, but we take our work very seriously. So that's kind of the vibe that mm -hmm. you get when you walk into the element office. You know, <laughs> is that kind of fun, quirky personality. Do you see a lot of turnover then? Because it seems that if you're not just looking at the person's skills, but looking at them more as a holistic individual, then I would feel like that they would feel much more aligned with the firm and would stay with it a lot longer than maybe someone who is just there to work on a cool project and then move on to the next spot. Yes. So I would say the first eight years of Element, there mm -hmm. has been. I've actually... Element where it is, is not, you know, it was quite a journey to get to where we are. So at the fifth year of Element, I actually had to let go half of the staff oh. because the culture was not what I wanted. And it, you know, we were still new and young and trying mm -hmm. to really just survive, right? Financially survive. But as we grew into the fifth, six years, it's like, there's something off about the culture. This is not how I envision it to be wow what was that like letting go half of the staff oh it was it was really hard it was really hard but we needed to do it because i also had staff that were dedicated that shared the same value and i was like if i don't do anything i'm gonna lose those staff so i hunkered down let go of half the staff and the half that we remain we had a meeting and say, okay, this is where we are. And I've talked to some of them individually before we have made this decision. They, you know, they appreciate the fact that we were willing to do something hard in order to get to a better place. 
So as far as turnover, uh, my leadership team, my longest running engineer that's been with me within the leadership team has been with me for eight years. And he's he's been with me since he graduated college. And so he's seen all the stages and he's still with us because he, he, he believes in the value. He sees that we are genuinely making an effort to make sure that we can build a culture that where we are now. And he's it was like I said, it was quite a journey to get there. And now we have people in the leadership team that is coming to Element because we align with what they want. They want they want to help grow Element because they believe in that. You know, so all the staff that been with us has been with us for quite some time. So we've been very fortunate that we don't have we have not experienced a lot of turnover the last four years. You know, four or five years. Which the last four years have probably been some of the most tumultuous times, aside from maybe letting go half the staff. But I mean, the pandemic was a real curveball. Oh, yeah, it was a real curveball. And every single time it's like the silent quitting or, you know, all of these. I was like, oh, my gosh. And I think one thing is like, I don't want to stay complacent. Like thinking, oh, yeah, no, my staff are cool. They're not leaving. I think that's where it's easy to get comfortable, especially when you have built that relationship to have that kind of like comfortability. It's like, oh, they're not going to leave. But let me tell you, every single review, I'm always tense because I just never know what curveball. So I always have to like have the worst case scenario. But I will say that every performance review, review and end of the year has been like for me I think I think I take it more personally I'm like tense and like okay they're still happy you know (laughs) but yeah I've been very fortunate that the staff that we have they they love working here they love the team and they've had uh, genuinely express one-on-one with me how much they appreciate the team and my leadership so that makes it like heartwarming to continue to you know be on this path that we are and just kind of a confirmation that we are doing something right yeah it seems you've put a lot of time and effort into not just developing excellent work coming out of your firm but also excellent work culture and having that the empathy and and creating an environment where people feel trusted and they can build trust and build relationships which i think is great yeah, and trust me, I've also have staff that comes with me with difficult conversation. Like Twee, I want to bring this up because I care about the firm or I care about this and that, but I'm not sure if you know what's going on here. And we will have difficult conversation about. Sometimes I I'm a bit aware. Sometimes it's something that, like you said, the last few years have been so volatile. You just never know, right? And people's life has changed. So you don't know that because of those changes that it may change the circumstance at element. Uh, but I've been very fortunate that staff have come to me to have difficult conversation. And I think that, you know, at least they tell me that I make it easier for them to come and have difficult conversation with me to give me heads up and, and let me know, you know, what's happening in their lives and what they're thinking and how we can still continue to work together. So, you know, I'm forever grateful, you know, for those conversations because it's easy for leaders to go, oh, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it and hide behind walls instead of just 
okay, it's going to be a difficult one, but let's talk and see what we can do. Well, as a leader too, how do you balance the needs of the company versus the needs of your people? Where I'm sure some of those conversations are eggs are like, you know, $20 a pack now. Milk is crazy <laughs> expensive. I'm trying to buy a new car, oh, a house. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you would love to just hand out money as much as you could, but realistically, you're also running a business. How do you balance those two things? I think that right now, that question is perfect timing because we know how right now the economy is so volatile. And we've already heard of all different firm in the AEC that have to let people go. We were not immune to that. And I think where the staff appreciate is the transparency and quick decision making. It has been tough. And I think what helps me is to look at the bigger picture. As a leader, I can't just look at one individual, right? Because if I do that, then I'm not going to let anybody go or make changes that I need to make for the whole entire team. So as a leader, I have to kind of zoom out at that high level and say, okay, what is best, right? And be able, I think what's important is to be able to work with your leadership team, right? And then from there to be able to communicate in uh, as transparent as you can be and as proactively as you can be with the staff. So we recently had to let one of our staff go and furlough the rest of the staff. And I had an open office hour after the team announcement. And I was pretty sure people was going to come on and ask, well, what about me? Or how long is this going to last? You know, ask really hard questions like that. But you know what? All of them came on. And there's like three, thanks for the transparency. Thanks for the decision. We know it was hard, but we're here to support you. What else can we do? And I was like, it was very touching because here I am like, okay, everybody's worried. I'm worried. We're all worried. But, but you know what? I had, I, I had a great team. They came on and instead of asking me those questions, like, we know it's tough for you. What, what else can we do? And we know that, you know, you're, you're making decisions that's best for the team. I mean, I don't know how many leaders out there that get that kind of response. Probably not that many. Was, yeah, that was the response that I got. You know, and still, every month that I check in, they actually check in, like, when I have mentorship hours with them. How are you doing, Twee? And I'm like, thank you for asking. You know, so it's a great team. I, 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 think, it, uh, I think at the end of the day, they're my staff is like my second family you know and i think that they they feel it you know it's one thing to say it but to feel it and you know and then for them to feel it back and giving giving it back to me it's like i don't know i i, I feel very fortunate and grateful that you know they reach out to let me know hey i just want to let you know you're doing a great job and um, I know time is tough, but what else can I do to help? It took some time to get there, but it's it's a wonderful environment that we have here. And I think part of that is being able to be vulnerable. I think leaders tend to not show vulnerability because they're the leaders, right? They don't want to show vulnerability. Well, what I've learned from Renee Brown is that's really important. And I've learned that just from parenting two teenagers, you know, 
that until they they want to see that you're human and how a leader can show their human side is to be able to be vulnerable and say, you know what? I don't have an answer to everything, but we're going to figure it out together. And that have worked for me to gain trust with my staff is to offer up my vulnerability so that they see, oh, like wellness. They all know that I take naps during the afternoon. We even have a wellness room. Okay, We have a wellness room. I was like, please use it. Use it to take your 15, 20 minute recharge. And, but it comes from leadership to encourage, like, you know, at least I hear from uh, other people, right? Well, you know, even though my principals say that, I just don't feel comfortable because I see them just working, working, working. So we have to be role models of that, right? So I tell them, I was like, look, I need my afternoon nap because I'm just getting older. I got a lot of things going on. And if I don't have my afternoon nap, I'm not going to be present for you. Uh And for me to share that vulnerability, they're like, oh, well, if Tree takes a nap, then it's okay for me to take a nap. Mm -hmm. You see, you see how like leadership, it it has to be that give and take. It's circular. So if you're not willing to offer that you take a nap and you're preaching to take care of yourself, nobody's going to want to listen. Right. Uh, Same thing with mental health. Right. It's okay to say, I mean, I think it's okay. I mean, they know I I have therapy. I think it's it's like, hey, I'm trying to encourage staff to use their benefit to get the therapy or just get expert companions, a coach, whatever you want to call it. But some somebody that can help you stay sane. So as a leader, you know, of course, I don't have to get granular about all the details, but to be able to show them like, hey, I also receive it and I find it so helpful. Uh, you know, people always uh, make fun like, oh, how do you run a business with your husband and, you know, raise children? That's like marriage therapy. That's <laughs> what's saving our marriage. <laughs> but, you know, even though it's fun, it's serious. Like, yes. that's what I used. And I think that um, the staff, at least they tell me, it's like, thanks for letting me know that you do that too. You know, so I think leadership, if you can show your vulnerability to your staff, you can easily build trust faster with them. I love that. Yeah. It's once you're open, you open all of those other doors and then you build an even stronger relationship just based off knowing people more than just surface level. It helps you work better, but then also creates those longer lasting relationships where people are with you for eight years or more, you know, as, as time goes on, they have built that connection and trust with you. And they know that during tough times, you're going to have their back. And during the good times, you're also going to have their back. Yeah. But I think that that's great. Yeah. I, I can't ask any more questions that would top that. So I think we'll switch to, <laughs> I had a couple quick questions. I know you mentioned the Brene Brown book that you really liked. Are you reading anything else right now that you'd want to share? I'm reading Fierce Conversation. I'm trying to finish what is called the war on kindness and the infinite game. So yeah, those are some of the library. Like if you look behind there, you see all the books. One that I'm trying to get to is speaking to influence. I'm trying to get to that one. And that one was a recommendation through my friend that's been in the healthcare industry. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of great recommendations. I might have to include like a little list of like Twee's recommended books in the show notes of this. 
Speaking of show notes too, as we wrap up, what is your your website? If they want to connect with you on social media, where can they find you? Our website is elementse.com and you can find us there as well as we are on Instagram and LinkedIn. And I believe LinkedIn is just Element Structural Engineer. Instagram is Element SE with the underscore. Thank you, Twee, so much for being a guest on this podcast. I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to meet and have this conversation. Same here, Caitlin. Thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation. It was really fun just chatting with you and sharing with you all the you know stories of Element here. And I look forward to the podcast and I look forward to opportunity to connect with you again. Me too. <laughs> Thanks, Twee. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Architect Debt. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your network, leave us a five-star rating and review, and follow us on social media. Reach out to the podcast directly at architectet.com. That's architectette.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. See you then.